The greatest gift that God ever gave is a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. It's the greatest price that was ever paid in all of history. It was such an all-inclusive gift offering that it covers every person of Adam's race. That an atonement, now atonement is an Old Testament term. You remember when we preached about the New Testament and the Old Testament being joined together in the life of Jesus. And the Old Testament talks about atonement in that it is a covering, it's an indulgence. It's almost as if it's like God saying, it's there but I'm going to indulge you of that and take that uh, out of our relationship if you do certain things. If you appear every year at the day of Purim at uh, Yom Kippur and you bring with you an offering and we'll take it back into a place called a Holy of Holies in a temple in Jerusalem and we'll shed its blood and that blood offering will be sufficient to remit the sins that you have committed during the past year. Why every year did we do that? The day of Purim or the day of atonement. It's because there could never be an offering that would eliminate having to go back again and again and again and offering another animal and another animal and another animal every year. It was a yearly indulgence and that was called atonement. It, it was as if God was doing in a juridical way. He was saying this is the way that you and I can have relationship. If you keep doing this, then you and I can have relationship. There could never be enough lambs offered to sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. There could never be enough uh, calves offered. There could never be enough goats offered for the sins of the whole world forever. But in the Hebrew correspondence, we read that this man hath once offered himself. This man hath once offered himself for the sins of the whole world forever. So that Christmas literally means that God has taken care of the sin issue once and for all. For God so loved the world. God so loved the world. And therein is a tremendous foundation for preaching. God so loved the world. His love is unconditional. His love is unrelenting. What is it, that song that Justin sings here sometimes? That reckless love of God that leaves 90 and 9 and goes out and finds a lost sheep that God is uh, metaphorically portrayed to us as a, a shepherd, that great shepherd of the sheep, and all of we are like sheep and have gone astray, having not a shepherd. But thanks be to God, he resolved that sin issue that was between us because when Adam sinned and disobeyed God, then it was such demagoguery 
that he was driven out of the presence of God. We had no right to stand in the presence of God. No, you might say we had no footing. We had nothing that could make a way that we could stand in the presence of God because we know that no unclean thing shall appear before him and we know that nothing that is corrupt and nothing that is vile could ever appear in his presence. That's just not possible. There's no admission for that. So then there had to be some way and God is the one that put the Levitical system in place. In fact, it came through Moses and through Aaron in those first five books of the Pentateuch. He tells us how everything is supposed to be done, how the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be carried, how that the sacrificial knife is to be placed upon the uh, off altar, how that there's a, a, a golden laver where a priest is to wash himself physically before he goes back into the uh, temple for offering sacrifices. But the Bible said, every man standeth daily offering sacrifices which can never take away sin. All of that could never take it away. All of that could just indulge it or pardon for a period of time. But there would have to come a time when God's offering would have to be accepted to make that provision, the redemptive provision, work. So then every year, People were in hopes that maybe this will be the year that Messiah will come. And you see, the problem is he came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as did receive him, gave he power to become the sons of God. The problem there is that Israel was looking for a military king to come and not live in a, in a stable and not be born in a manger and and uh, not go through the poverties of living as a common carpenter because you see what we're seeing here is the whole Davidic lineology and genealogy and lineage has digressed to being kings down to becoming carpenters in little cities like Nazareth. So you see what happens when you take God out of the equation. It's what we call the intertestamental period. It's that 400 years between Malachi and Matthew that we hear nothing from God. We have no prophecies. We have no word, nothing from God, just people looking for the consolation of Israel. The most prominent would be a guy named Zacharias who lived in the temple, and he was given a great promise by God. God told him, you will not see death until you have beheld the Lord's Christ. And oh, when he discovered him in the temple, he said, and now I can rest in peace. I can go to my fathers. For this day mine eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. Boy, what an exhilarating experience that was for him, don't you know? That he waited with patience. He waited with diligence. He kept on, he was a priest in the temple and kept on doing his priestly duties and kept on doing what he knew to do. You know, a lot of people that when they're called into service or called to do some specific task, they sometimes think that's immediately just supposed to take place. Sometimes it doesn't work like that. You remember when David was anointed king at Jesse's house? Remember? And Samuel poured that hen of oil on him, you know, and, and the Lord said, this is the one I have chosen to be the king. But the next day he went back to the field and tended sheep. 
You see, sometimes it's hard to get other people excited about what God has anointed you to do. Sometimes the worst thing you can do is tell other people what God has promised you because they'll shoot your promise full of holes and tell you a million ways why that can't happen. They'll judge you and tell you you're stupid to think something like that when God has given you a dream and God has given you a promise and you eventually get accustomed to what they say and what they think because people look on the outward appearance but God looks upon the heart. And when God looks upon the heart and knows your heart, then you got to understand, he doesn't just throw you right out there in the fire. He sometimes conditions you like Joseph was conditioned, you see, and lets things transpire in your life to prepare you to do what he's called you to do. When you're anointed, when you're anointed, when you are anointed, you don't have to go around knocking on doors. Could you, would you let me preach? Would you please let me come let preach? I'm anointed. I, I, need, I need you to know I'm anointed of God and I want to preach. You need to let me come preach. When you're anointed, they'll come get you. Anointed. Isn't it strange that that's why they call Jesus the holy anointed one? the one who is anointed to bear the sins of the whole world, that that was his purpose. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. A very, very smart man with a Ph.D. in psychology said to me this week, there are many ways to God. There are many ways. There are many, many ways that you can get to God. You can get to God through nature. You can get to God many different ways that you can find God. And I quoted him the scripture that said, There is salvation in no other. Neither is there any other name given among men whereby we must be saved. That Jesus is the only way. He's not one of many ways. He is the way, the truth, the life. He is the, thank you, he is the one mediator between God and men. He has once offered himself, he thrust himself into this situation. It wasn't an idea of, of trying to find something valuable to purchase redemption. What purchased our redemption was the humility and the submissiveness of the Lord Jesus who was rich, was rich, but for your sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. Do you understand that? That we could trade places with him. He was rich, but he became poor, that we could become rich. Now I'm not talking about Fort Knox kind of rich. And I'm not talking about Regions Bank kind of rich. I'm talking about the richness of your relationship with the Lord Jesus. I'm talking about those truths and those wonderful blessed experiences that you mine from a relationship with the Lord Jesus. You're rich. If you know Jesus, you're rich. If you've got a, got a covenant with a heavenly Father, you're rich. If you know Him in the free pardon of sin, you're rich, rich. Some visitors 
and some philanthropists were viewing in the Middle East and they came upon a leprosarium and there was a little lady there and she was singing, I'm rich. Praise God, I'm rich. One of the guys got down out of the carriage and walked over and said, ma'am, said, what is that song you're singing? She said, oh, I'm, I'm singing one of the songs from my home church back in, uh, in England. How in the world can you sing a song that you're rich when you're in the poorest place of the poorest area of the whole world and you're saying you're rich? She said, oh, yes, I'm rich. And as he walked away, he looked at her and he said, ma'am, I wouldn't do what you do for a million dollars. And she hollered back at him, I wouldn't either. I wouldn't either. You see, when the love of God constrains you, and when you've got this, this attitude of sensing that who Jesus is and why he came, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus did not come to populate hell. Jesus did not come to place people at the judgment bar of God. Jesus did not come to bondage people to rules and ceremonies and rituals and feast days and all the things of orthodox Judaism. No, he did not. Why did he come? I did not come to condemn the world, but I came to save. Not to condemn but to save, to save. So it's right then that we celebrate the birth of a Savior. With all of that in, in mind, that's a big background, but that's what was prevailing. We're in that period where God has not spoken. For 400 years, the intertestamental period, no word from God, the prophets, the priests, nothing. But suddenly a virgin girl whose name was Mary, was visited by an angel and told her that she was highly favored of God and that she would bear a son and that that son would be the savior of the world. Wow. Well, we've got a real problem here because she's uh, engaged. And I preach about him so oftentimes, the forgotten man of Christmas. That's Joseph. Brother, he had no easy part to play in this. Do you realize he loves this woman and they're, they're about to get married? And that angel, and I love when God does things, he does all the parts fall in place. And when Mary was told that she would bear a son, the angel then went to Joseph and said, Joseph, Mary is going to bear a special child. And in Matthew 1, 21, he told Joseph, he said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Wow. Suddenly Joseph became a servant in this whole episode. Even though it meant he would be ridiculed and mocked and that people would look at him with inquisitive eyes 
and would ask, what kind of fool are you, my Lord? Y'all are not even married yet, and she's walking around with a huge belly. It's obvious she's about to have a baby. And you're going to marry her? Well, the implications were that she could possibly have been stoned for adultery. But the Bible said, but Joseph choosing to not let her go through that shame, to hide her away. The Bible said he put her away privately so that she wouldn't become an obstacle of ridicule. But then we come to our text today. Luke chapter 2, and it came to pass in those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be taxed. This taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now, you remember the sermon that I preached to you about what that name means, don't you? Bethlehem. Lehem is bread. Bet means city of. So Bethlehem is the city of the bread. Who said, I am the bread of life? Jesus. So Bethlehem is the place of his birth, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was while they were there that the days were accomplished that she should be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. There were in that same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings. What is good tidings? Gospel. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be unto all people. Can anybody say all people? All people, not just Jewish, but unto all people. All people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. A sign? This shall be a sign unto you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with that angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. And it came to pass as those angels were gone away from them into heaven that those shepherds said one to another, let us go now even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass which the Lord hath made known unto us. They came with haste and found Mary and Joseph, and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, the first evangelist. You ever wonder who the first evangelists were? No, it wasn't Peter, and it wasn't 
Nathaniel and it wasn't James and John. The first evangelists were these shepherds. Listen to what they did. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Wow. First evangelists were shepherds tending a very special kind of sheep. You remember from all the sermons that I preached about Christmas that those sheep that were in the fields just outside of Bethlehem were being raised by certain men for a certain purpose. They were what was called temple sheep. And temple sheep are, if you arrived as a good Jew, you went back to Israel and because on the day of Purim you were obligated to go to the uh, temple and uh, most of the time you would buy a lamb after you got there. These lambs were what was called temple lambs. They were raised, they were born, raised and cared for to give their life for the sins of the Jewish nation. Wow, you're awful quiet. Maybe you're, Debbie says you're listening. She's on y'all's side. Temple sheep were raised for a specific purpose, to live their life, but their ultimate purpose was to be killed for the sins of the nation on the day of Purim. Now, isn't it something that God meshes those two situations together? That they are very acquainted with these lambs are going to be slaughtered and their blood is going to be shed so that sin can be atoned for. While at the same time, an angel appears and a multitude of heavenly hosts and they're singing glory to God in the highest and the angel says, fear not, don't be afraid. Well, it must have been a pretty frightful thing to be out there on the Judean desert and look up in the sky and it's all lit up and a voice comes speaking out of that, that fire, that light in the cloud and says to you that unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You will find that baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. One of the best ways for me to fathom and get this in my mind is that these men had an understanding of God's redemptive provision in that without the shedding of blood there is no remission for sin. So then Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In fact, Paul said it this way, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Well, he personally owned that scripture right there. That Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like every one of us. That God had you and you and you and you and me on his mind when he was doing this activity. This is called redemptive activity. Soteriological activity is what a theologian would call it because it has to do with salvation. Scriptures that have to do with salvation are, are powerful in that they inform us that God is working on a plan, that God has an idea. Salvation and grace comes from the heart of God. 
Grace flows from the heart of God toward us. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, The grace of God that brings salvation. The grace of God that brings salvation. In other words, it's God's heart of grace. God's gracious heart extended redemption to every one of us in the person of his son Jesus. Wow, what an offering that is. What a powerful blessing that is for every one of us. And he says, this will be a sign. You will find that baby. That baby will be wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. I've heard that verse so many hundred times, and I've preached from it. The context is important at this point. The angel has thus declared the best news anybody has ever heard. Unto you is born a Savior. We forget how un- unprepared those shepherds were to hear those words. How they must have sounded so awesome. A Savior has been born. Messiah has come. But where is Bethlehem? How, how will I find that baby when we get in Bethlehem? That's where verse 12 comes in. This is the sign. And the Greek has the definite article. It's not a sign, it's the sign. This shall be the sign. I would expect that next verse to read, the moon's going to turn to blood and the stars are going to spell its name. J-E-S-U-S, rah, rah, rah. But no, the sign from God is this. You'll find that baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. A lot of questions come into our mind if if a sign is that we will find a baby and that baby will be dressed in certain attire. Now you need to understand that for the most part in the Middle East when young babies like that are are young and needing special care, uh, pardon me, but they run around naked. They don't wear diapers. They just run around naked. I imagine that would create a nasty mess in the house. Why does the text mention this part about swaddling clothes? And what does the manger really signify? Jesus was almost certainly not the only baby that was in Bethlehem that night. What is it that would distinguish him? We know that later on, Herod had all the baby boys... Under two years of age, he put them to death. So there must have been some other infants and toddlers that were so unfortunate as to come under this madman's rage in an attempt to destroy what God was trying to do. And I want to tell you, the devil is still trying to destroy what God does. That same madman like Herod was here is like Pharaoh who took baby boys and threw them in the Nile River and killed them because he didn't want an emancipator to come. He didn't want a deliverer to come. He didn't want scripture to be fulfilled. Are you hearing what this pastor's saying? He didn't want God's offer of abundant life to be a reality in the lives of people and he's still fighting that today. You see, A baby, what was his name? In the beginning was the, and the, was with God and the, the word was God. So you see, if the devil can kill a word when it's a baby, 
That's when he can attack it because that's when it is most vulnerable is when it's a baby. When that word that God has given to you, that promise that God has given to you, while it's still in its infancy, it's vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. Are you hearing what I'm saying? When God gives a word like he gave Jesus, when he gives a gift to you, it's to bless you because God never gives anything to hurt you. He always gives something to help you and something to bless you. Hey, get it through your head. The devil will forevermore be fighting against what God wants to give you. He's a murderer, he's a thief, he's a robber, and he's very much in business today trying to kill the word of God in you. Trying to kill the life of God in you. And if he can get that word killed in its infancy when it's most vulnerable. You see, when you walk out of here on a Sunday morning at a and a passage that was read, something was placed upon the screen, something was said during the message that really hit home with you. And you felt like the Lord really spoke to your heart. The most vulnerable time for that infant word is right then. If you don't take care of it, how many of you know what would happen to a baby if you don't take care of it? Did you know that in all of life on this planet, the most helpless of all beings is a newborn baby. So helpless. So helpless. Unless parents care for and nurture that infant, it doesn't have a chance. So it is with the Word of God when God gives you and births something inside you and you're carrying it around inside you, carrying around the word of the Lord, carrying around a promise, carrying around a covenant between you and God and you're carrying around that thing on the inside of you. Something happens when suddenly you birth that blessing and it becomes so vulnerable then and so weak and unable to care for itself, that you've got to take care of that word. Does that make any sense? If you don't feed that word, it'll die. If you don't caress and hold on to that word, it won't feel like you care very much about it. Come on, somebody. See, if you don't care for what God is birthing in you, like he birthed to the whole human race, to every voice of Adam's race, every person of Adam's race, every person under the curse, every person that had fellowship with God broken, that God is saying to you, I want you to know that you can be saved through my son Jesus. What a great gift that is for anybody is to know that you can be saved through the power of his son Jesus. The Greek word for swaddling clothes is sparganu. Luke 12, 2 and 12 tells us that the angels appeared to the shepherds and he told them that the real baby Messiah, he would be wrapped in baby clothes, sparganu. 
Historical records reveal the significance of those clothes. It was common in ancient times not to put any clothes on what we would call diapers even on a baby. Babies would not be allowed, would be allowed rather to walk around naked or wearing a tunic-like garment. Most likely only the wealthy had enough money to afford swaddling clothing for their children. Well, now wait just a minute, Pastor. If he was rich and he came poor, why in the world was the word lying in a trough in a stable, but he had on wealthy clothes? How in the world did he come to be wearing wealthy clothes lying in a filthy food trough in a stable in a little stinky town in Bethlehem. Wow. Well, there were probably many people traveling at that time because everybody was going to be taxed. Jesus in a manger, an animal trough, laying in an animal trough and Ironically, wrapped in rich clothes, that would be an incredible sign to shepherds. Luke 2.12 is telling us that the particular circumstance of Jesus' birth, very important, they're a part of the message that God gives us. Jesus could have been born in any circumstances that God chose. What is the message? What is God saying? What do we learn about the way God works and about the means by which he reveals himself to us? God always uses paradoxical things in the miracles that he does and in the wonderful needs he supplies. There's always something in that process. It's like the little woman with the issue of blood that she just said, if I could but touch the hem of his garment, I know that I would be made whole. And the day she was made whole was the day she stretched and she stretched and she touched the hem of his garment. But from the mouth of the Savior, you hear the words, who touched me? You mean you can't just touch his clothes without him knowing? Peter thought that. Peter said, well, Lord, there's people all around you. Why in the world do you think it's something strange that somebody bumped up? He said, that was no bump, Peter. Because I felt healing virtue flow out of my body when that woman touched the border of my garment. Boy, that, that seems so quirky and weird, isn't it? Isn't it quirky and weird for Elijah to, or Elisha to walk up and a woman is out gathering sticks up? And we've talked about those sticks because... You turn them this way and they make a cross and the oil symbolizes the Holy Spirit and the flour symbolizes the bread. Bread and oil on the sticks. You'll get it in a minute. You know, why does God do those the little things like that? And it, it's, it's great that we have scholars and people that look and see that because just reading over it, you'd never see that. I'm, I'm out here gathering up two sticks that I can make a pone of bread, as it were, for me and my son, and the end result of our life is we're going to die. 
when Jesus found us, we needed a cross, two sticks. And we needed the bread of life because without him, we would die an eternal lost person and go to hell. Wow, those quirky things. What does these clothes mean? If they're rich person's clothes, what is a poverty, family in poverty, that is there in that, that predicament and they've got rich people's clothes on? How many of you ever seen the sign of the president, the seal of the president? It's on his motorcade, it's on Air Force One, it's on his helicopter, it's on his desk, it's on the office door there, the seal of the President of the United States. So there's no missing out. When you walk in, you see the mark and the sign everywhere that lets you know I'm in the Oval Office. Uh, I expect the next person I see to be the one that's got his seal on this door. Praise God. That seal that is on that door. Britain had a sign of their monarchy. You know the lions that are facing one another. You've seen it many times. And an heir that has been born to the throne of England. The answer is look on the cover of People's Magazine. You'll see a picture of Prince William. That is the sign. Read the gossip columns too because they'll talk about that too. The sign that there is a successor that there is somebody that is going to step up and take that place. God says, many, many years ago, O Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou art least among all the tribes, yet out of thee shall Shiloh come. Well, in Micah chapter 5 and verse 5, he says, And a man shall be for your peace. Boy, Isaiah, we almost call Isaiah's book of prophecy uh, the gospel of Isaiah because it has so many references. He talks about a a, a time when God would uh, move and God would bring about a, a being. And he said his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Wow. And the government shall be upon his shoulders and of his kingdom and his increase, there shall be no end. It was Isaiah that talked about the Lord Jesus, that his back was given to the uh, uh, plowers, and his face was given to the smiters, and that surely he hath borne our sorrows, and the iniquity of us all was placed upon him. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. When he talked about the Messiah, and talked about the messianic promise that God had given to us, He said, a man shall be for your peace. A man that God would approve of. A man that God would say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. Wow. What sign did God give to us about the coming of the Lord Jesus? A baby wrapped in clothes. The early church. Father John Chrysostom. You ever heard of that guy? Probably not. You'd hear about him a lot if you went to seminary. He was a great, one of the church fathers. He called this sign the most tremendous and wonderful sign. He referred to 1 Timothy 3.16, tells us that great is the mystery of God, godless, that God was manifest in the flesh. 
that verse that you love so much that you quoted a while ago in St. John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 14th verse says this, And that Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father. What a wonderful sign God has given to us. You'll find the gift in a manger in the form of a, of a baby. And what does that mean to all of us? It means to us the world missed it. The world took little note of what happened that night in Bethlehem in a stable. It didn't make CNN. It didn't make Fox News. It didn't headline in the Boston Globe or the New York Times or the Aniston Star. No mention of it. In fact, it just went unnoticed. And Jesus had an upbringing very much like other Jewish boys were raised. One day when he was 12, the parents had taken him to Jerusalem, he was in the temple, and they lost him. They lost him. That's a good sermon, isn't it? How to lose Jesus. They lost him. But when they found him, they found him doing something so incredible. No, he wasn't at a playground. No, he wasn't over at one of the pools. Where was he? He was in the temple. And at 12 years old, he was astounding the brilliant minds in the temple about what he knew about the temple and the covenant and Judaism. Wow. What is it they call them? Genius kids? Felix Mendelssohn was writing piano concertos at six years old. Brahms, Chopin, all were child prodigies that, that were so gifted and talented that they astounded the world with their gift. Well, these wise men from the East, the Bible called them. Matthew talks most about them. And God gave a sign. We have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Well, they were like most folks of our day. If you want to find the president, you go to Washington, to the capital, hope to find him there. To find Jesus, this babe that was born, this strange sign that's leading us to this Messiah, this one this, that's going to be one, the promised one that has been born. We want to go find him. They went down to the palace and talked to Herod. We're, we're in your country. We're from a east. In fact, they traveled from Iraq. Strange, isn't it? Had traveled from the east and they'd made it to Jerusalem and they went to the temple and they said, we've come to worship the one that is born, king of the Jews. Now, you're talking to the king of the Jews, but you're telling him, we've come to worship one who has been born king of the Jews. 
Herod flew into a rage and he decided, I've got to kill all babies. But it was very sly. He said, you know, I want to worship him too. And when you find him, send me word so that I can come. God and the word and the birth of Jesus has always gone through great peril for God to get it to you. For God to get the gift to you. It's been a tremendous effort. Blood has been shed all over the world in getting this gift to people who God wants to receive it. Isn't it something that when they found the place, the star led them to the place. I preached a sermon a few years ago, you remember it? When the star of Bethlehem leads you to a shack. Sometimes following the Lord will lead you to a strange place. Sometimes following his star will take you to some places you may not feel that much comfortable in and you'll scratch your head when you're standing in the street looking at the place and, God, what in the world do you mean? And the star stood over that shack. And those wise men went in and worshiped. But when time came, according to Isaiah's prophecy, time came for them to leave The angel said, go back through Egypt. Don't go back the way you came. In other words, you've got to take care of the promise. You've got the answer to the world's problems, but you've got to take care of it. Don't put it in harm's way. Amen. Sometimes the people who are most critical of what God can do and is doing in your life, they will try to assassinate that, that promise that gift that God's given to you. So what does that bring to us here Christmas this year? Well, we've got a lot of preaching to do between now and Christmas Day about it, but the one thing we need to understand is this, that God has given His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the greatest gift of all times. Oh, what a Savior, the song says. Oh, what a Savior. So this holiday season, I would admonish you. This year, I'm going to make this holiday season spiritual. Yeah, I'm going to buy the gifts for all family and all that like that. But I am going to emphasize the spiritual this Christmas and not miss it like the whole world missed it when Jesus first came. He's come to give us life and he's come to give us light. An old song that we used to sing a long time ago in a Christmas Cantata that we did in the old building down there, wise men still seek him. Wise men still seek him. And I want to tell you, wisdom is seeking the Lord Jesus and letting him be the answer to all your needs.